Hi, this is Al Lubell, and this is an interview I'm doing with Sarah Shulman for Comedy Bloggity, and I hope you can tell by the tone of my voice I'm excited by it and would like you to listen to it. So, Al, how did you get into comedy? Uh, how did I get into comedy? Well, it's a, it's a license you buy. It's like a taxi cab license, and you buy like a medallion, and that gives you the right to be funny. No, I'm joking. Uh, the uh, How did I get into comedy? They actually had open... Mike Knights, I was going to, I just graduated uh, undergrad in college. I was president of student government, and I found that I liked giving speeches and trying to throw jokes into the speeches. So that summer after I graduated college, I had an open mic night every Sunday night in Fort Lauderdale, and I'd go up every Sunday night and try out humor. And so what was your first gig like? Uh, gee, you know, that's a good question. I never really thought if I had a first, by first gig, do you mean getting paid money for it or just first, oh, you mean first ever standing on stage? You know, I think it was with a friend of mine. I was president in college and this guy was speaker of the Senate and we went up as a duo at this Sunday night thing in Fort Lauderdale and we thought we were so funny because we'd make each other laugh and we went up there and whatever I said, the first thing I said came off the top of my head about, I made a joke about our situation. I think I came up, I had shorts on or something. I didn't give much thought what to wear. I made some kind of joke that got a really good laugh. And then everything we planned out in this sketch between us got dead silence. Everything. Except the one thing I made up right in the beginning is a little quick. So I learned a lesson uh, that I wasn't funny. No, No, I learned a lesson maybe that uh, all these plans... Uh, we're not, you know, they have to be tried out. Like we created this huge long sketch and if the first part doesn't work, then, you know, we had no, we didn't know what we were doing. So I just learned that this is, what I learned, it's very hard work. Comedy is not easy. So how do you feel that your style has changed since you first started gigging? Well, uh, I guess my style has changed in terms of take more time. I think I rushed when I started a bit because I was scared. I was scared of silences and pauses and I realized over time that pauses and silences and I've taken some acting classes and in acting they call it beats you know and I realized comedy needs beats too and it took a a long time to to figure that out like to let the audience follow your train of thought uh not being you know there's a tendency to when I started want to get to that punchline fast because the punchline is where the laugh is but to get a laugh you really got to take your time along the way to the punchline so in a way it's almost like sex that uh foreplay is very important to the orgasm and do you have a specific process that you go about when you write your material? A uh, specific process. Yes, I just m- try to make sure that what I write is funny. No, I'm joking. Uh, what is the process? Uh, no, ju- uh, if anything, just to think and not try to be funny. I mean, just try to think about something that I care about, something that bothers me or amuses me, and just try to write and think about, just create thoughts without trying to be funny. I guess it comes, because the funniness happens naturally. I guess, you know, when I read about, like, Buddhism and stuff like that, it's not about, you know, or this guy, Viktor Frankl, he survived the, he was a psychiatrist who survived, he was actually in the Holocaust, he survived three years in the Holocaust, and, but he, he, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning, and it's a really good book, but he talks about how you can't aim for success, you have to aim for enjoying it, which everyone knows, it's a cliche, but it's really true. So the same thing with comedy. You can't aim for the funny when you're writing. You have to aim for what you have to say. And hopefully it'll come out funny because hopefully that's the way you think is funny. And how often did you start gigging after your first gig? Let me take that back, though, what I just said. Uh, Sometimes you can aim for funny in terms of trying to like there are certain techniques uh, like switching things around or you look and try to think, well, you know, the joke needs a surprise. 
because you have to twist. There's usually got to be a twist or a surprise, and then you try to create the surprise. And the, the way to do that, you have to build in something in the first part of the joke, the setup, which you can then twist later for the surprise. So there are techniques to try to, to be funny. There are, is that too. What was your question? How often did you start gigging after your first gig? Uh, well, not much. It was just for like three years in law school. It was pretty much... A, a lot of Sundays I would go up and I try to create comedy nights down in law school in Miami, a little things without much success. Then I graduated law school and moved out to uh, Newport Beach, California. I was going to move to LA, but I think I was scared to be in LA. So I moved an hour south to Newport Beach and I started being a lawyer there and I would go, uh, go up on open mic nights there. Every Tuesday it was a place. And then gradually I started getting work at the local comedy club. And uh, so what was your question? How soon did I start gigging? How often? So after you did your first gig, did you go once a week or yeah, twice a week? Once a week, about yeah. When, while I was in law school, and yeah. And whilst you were at law school, did you find that studying law had an effect upon the way that you think about writing jokes or your material? Yeah, I think it really did. I mean, I, I didn't expect it to, but I think as a lawyer, you're always taught to look, analyze things. You know, the pros, the, the positive argument, the negative argument, and I think in comedy it's the same way. Just analyzing things really well and I think a guy that's really good at it is Jerry Seinfeld you know just looking at all the different angles of something and I remember Bill Hicks once said to me I once opened for him years ago and I said to him what is genius you know people call you a genius what is he goes it's like looking at things in a totally unexpected way that people think you're going to look at it. and I thought that was a very good def I remember he really liked Robert Klein at the time Robert Klein had a special on HBO and he felt Robert Klein was a genius but it's looking at things in a totally unexpected way so I think that's part of uh, maybe the law thing helps you because you, you're so trained to try to analyze things, you find an unexpected way. And speaking of Jerry Seinfeld, you opened for Jerry. So did you find it quite nerve-wracking opening for such a great comedian? Yeah, I was shocked. I remember I, it, back there in the 80s, it was one of my first road gigs ever, and it was in Oklahoma. And I forgot, I was living in California at the time, Newport Beach, I was a lawyer. And I can't remember how I got the gig. I think I heard about this club in Oklahoma. And I was, I told, just contact the guy. And I did, and I was shocked because most of the time club owners won't contact you. you no one really, no one knew who I was. And he, for some reason, he, he got back to me and said, I do have an opening. Jerry Seinfeld's headline. I couldn't believe it because Seinfeld had already been on the Tonight Show five or six times, at least maybe 10 times. And he was already, he wasn't famous. He didn't have the TV show yet, but he was really a well-respected comedian that was headlining all of the country. And, and people in the audience there knew him. They would shout out material for him to do. And I was shocked. I was middling for Seinfeld all because I made this phone call to Oklahoma. And it was pretty amazing. And I hung out with him the whole weekend. I played racquetball with him. We went to lunch. And he answered all my... I had lots of questions. And he answered all my questions. And I became kind of friendly with him in, in L.A. You know, I'd meet him sometimes. And it was really good to know him, know him. And would you say that that's had an impact on your comedy? Yeah. I mean, it was great to meet someone that really, you know, I, I remember watching him in Oklahoma and I'd seen him do stand up on TV, but I'd never seen him live. And it really did. I, just the idea of the thinking that went into it, uh, of all the analysis of the bits. And I think I remember telling him, you have such long bits. Yeah, I remember that after we were walking down the street after one show. And I said, he goes, well, you got some. And I go, no, but your bits are so detailed and long and intricate. And he said, I remember he said, I could see an article in the paper, comedian killed long bit, two long bits, you know, like he felt I was jealous. I remember he said that. But uh, yeah, but I remember he told me, I think in four years you'll get on The Tonight Show. You're not quite ready yet, but I see you in four years getting on The Tonight Show. Actually, he was two years, I guess I was lazy. He was two years too early. I got on six years from there. 
Yeah, well, you did David Lessman five times. Right. And what was your experience of performing to a TV studio audience as opposed to in a comedy club? Did you enjoy that? Uh, in some ways, yeah, because in some ways they're more focused. They're definitely more focused in a way because they're not drunk or drinking and they're not rowdy. But in some ways, they're in the, so they're alert. They're mentally alert. But there's a stiffness to them because they want you to do well. They've been pumped up by the you know the people in the show like you know applaud or laugh or focus or I think they're trying. In some ways, they're trying too hard because they know how important it is to the comedian. And so there is a little of a tension thing. And then I feel tension because you know like Rich Jenny was a very funny comedian in the states. He said it's such a pressure-filled thing. Five minutes and you just have to be great. And it's like that thing I was talking about, Victor Frankl. When you aim for success, it's a problem. You should aim to be good. But with that kind of a thing, a five-minute thing, you're aiming for success a lot because you have to be great. It's just five minutes. It's so important. And when those thoughts are going through your head, that's not good. <laughs> so it is a challenge. What I try to do to myself is those shows are taped like five in the afternoon and it airs 11 at night. So I never think to myself, millions are watching because they're not. Only 500 people are watching. And who knows, it may never air. So I don't think, I never think millions are watching. I just think 500, and uh, that helps me. And your material is quite dark. So did you find it difficult creating a TV set as opposed to one that you would do in a club? Yes, it is. Yeah, uh, like uh, you have to, it's a balance. You can't be incredibly dark, but so I took out some incredibly dark stuff. And, uh, but, and, and there is, you know, uh, they do go with it, but it is a little tense. You can't be... I know it's a slow thing on a TV set like to get them thinking your way because they're not necessarily expecting anything really dark. They're expecting more you know, regular stuff. And uh, so it is a challenge, but I want to be myself. I, would not, I do have some stuff that is not dark that's funny, but I don't, most, I don't feel really good doing it because I'm dark. You know? so I, and, and to feel comfortable up there, you have to be yourself. So, but the trick is I can't be too much myself because then it's going to bomb. <laughs> so I have to be somewhat myself, you know, compromise. Somewhat Alibel. Right, somewhat Alibel, right, exactly. And in some way I learned from working on cruise ships, those are very tough gigs because it's a very older crowd. And I can't, I really have to limit myself on those. I can't do too much Alibel things. I can't, you can't talk about death too much because they're all about to die. <laughs> I can't talk about disliking my mother because they're all my mother or their husbands are my, my father with my mother. Yeah, I remember after one show, this guy came up. To, I, you know, I, I don't know. If you see my, in my act, I suddenly go, I guess what I'm really trying to say here tonight is I hate my mother. You know, you remember that line in my, I, I did it. Well, in, uh, I did it on a cruise ship. A guy comes up to me after the show. You know, people are very angry at you that you said you hate your mother. So they're not getting the humor. You know, so uh, so I had to take that out, you know, so it's that, ten, you know, uh, cruise ships are very tough. So in my mind, I have to really. But what my point, I guess I was going to make is that uh, I actually was proud of myself. I was able to compromise with the cruise ship audience and make them laugh and still somewhat be myself. And I was shocked that I was happy I could compromise. I expected to feel horrible about it, but I was actually kind of proud of myself that I still let, let them have a good time. And I limited myself so of, of too much of me and it didn't really bother me. So I was surprised. And having gigged all over the U.S., did you find that different states reacted differently to your comedy? By the way, also let me say, I've had two shots of caffeine. I'm really only supposed to have one because I think two is too much for me, so I think I'm talking too much. But anyway, <laughs> but what was your question? Having gigged all over the U.S., have you found that different states react differently to your comedy? Uh, 
Yeah, yes, different states, yes. But ultimately, it's really who's in the crowd that night. But if you had to make a general sociological thing, yes, there are some, I think some southern states, it's tougher for me. Uh, but I think it's more about urban areas versus country areas. Like an urban area in Atlanta might be better than a country area near Los Angeles where I live, like a smaller town. Because I think my humor is maybe more natural to urban areas where neurosis is a thing and you know, fear is a thing and, you know, or, you know, in urban areas, they get together and talk about psychological things. We're in field, you know, cow fields and stuff they don't or something. So no offense against cow fields. But anyway, uh, my point is that, uh, yeah, that's, uh, I think some Southern states, it's been tougher for me uh, in general, you know, but uh, sometimes I do well there. You never know. And in performing such dark material, do you find that you get heckled a lot? Uh, Sometimes, yeah. Uh, It's more, you know, not so much heckled. I notice, like, I haven't had it here yet in the one-man show really heckled. But uh, I've heard here in Britain you get heckled more, which I welcome because it's like an involvement, a challenge, and that can be fun. But in America, it's just like looking at the cell phone, tuning out, talking, like passive-aggressive, talking to the person next to you. That's passive-aggressive. That You don't get heckled. I wish heckling. You know, it's funny. I found this out. I didn't realize it. My mother, my, fa- my father's dead, but my father's sister is still alive. And she told me my father used to go. Uh, did you ever hear of Martin and Lewis, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis? They were a comedy team in the 40s. And uh, they were big in the 40s. My father he was a pharmacist. He'd close the pharmacy and I'd go to their show at the Copacabana and heckle them. <laughs> so my father was a heckler, you know, and I became a comedian. I don't know. Maybe that's my own self-destructive wish. I, I want my father to heckle me. Maybe, maybe that's what that is. I don't know. But yeah, he was a heckler. He would sit in the back and challenge them and try to make... They would have repartee or whatever back and forth. My father was funny. He, not that funny around me. I mean, he was quiet and he slept a lot around me because he worked nights and he slept during the day. So I, but I could see that when he was awake, he was funny. <laughs> so do you have any advice for acts about dealing with hecklers? I think my advice is when I started out, you know, a lot of comedians, and I did it too, there were like traditional lines, uh, hacky lines that everyone has to like something about this. I remember one, this is what happens when two cousins have sex or something. And so I did, but then I learned over the years, I like to, actually I like a big part of my act is I'll talk to the audience and I could spend a lot of time because I think from being a lawyer, it helps me. I like asking questions and I can create the humor out of the questions. And uh, so with hecklers, I like to engage them and talk to them. And say, why? what's the problem? Why don't you find me funny? And like at first it's going to create awkward tension, but you can get some big laughs out of it. Just like a natural conversation. And I think one night, one night here, I don't know if I told you this story, but there were three jerks that came to one show. I think it was last Friday. And they were talking really loudly. And uh, I let them talk for a while. And I figured, then they really ruined a punchline because it was right before a pause you have to take before a punchline. They were loud during the pause and killed the punchline. So I, I started saying, what's the story? And they, they were from, one guy was from Ireland. He said, I can't understand you. I want my money back and all this kind of stuff. What I wish I had said to him, well, then why did you understand when I said, what's the problem? How, how were you able to answer that? I wish I had thought of that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I said, but yeah, I understand you don't like me. But what about the people around you that are trying to listen? They're laughing and you're ruining it for them. What about them? Why, why ruin it for them? Why not just be silent or leave? And he goes, well, uh, I paid money for the show. I go, yes, but why not just sit there and be silent and stare at me in anger? That's fine, but you're hurting the other people. And then, uh, to my surprise, someone in, front, in the front row right ahead of him said, yeah, you know, maybe you should pipe down a little. 
and the jerk from Ireland. No, I don't mean knock Ireland, but I don't know what he remember. He said Irish, so that's what I'm saying. The jerk says to the guy, "If you don't like it, fuck you, fuck off." And the guy said, and the guy behind him said, "Now nah, you're really getting out of line." And then he said, "I'll beat the shit out of you." He started saying, "I'll beat." He, so he showed his true colors. He was a complete jerk, and so finally he he stormed out, and so it worked. He left, and everyone in the audience applauded, and it was great. It was like cancer was radiated out of the room. He was cancer, you know. And, uh, but what I liked about what I did was I let, I just asked him some questions. I let him hang himself. I let the audience deal with him. I felt like Jerry Springer watching the jerks on the show yell at each other. The audience dealt with it and the guy left. And if I had let him keep talking, he could have ruined the whole show. He would have ruined every, cause that energy, he was right in the front. That energy was horrible and he was ruining, ruining punchlines by talking. So to answer your question, I never use typical heckler ones. I just try to reason with the person. And speaking of your one-man show, you're performing Al LaBelle is Mentally Al in Edinburgh at the moment. What's been your experience of the Edinburgh Festival so far? Now I'm afraid this guy's going to hear this interview and come after me. Anyway, my point... <laughs> my point is... What's my what's your question? <laughs> oh, what is my experience here at Mentally Al? Well, you can see why I'm Mentally Al, all my fears. But... Uh, I really like it. I mean, I'm amazed. I had never, you know, known. I've always heard about Edinburgh, but no one ever told me what it really was. It's a bit. I heard it was the biggest festival, but I had no idea. I mean, if it was just the Royal Mile, I'd be like wildly impressed. But it's like five of these things, you know, underbelly, this, this, that, the, just the tonic, the assembly, this, that. It, everything's a whole unique world. Thousands of shows. It's just the most amazing place I've ever been in my whole life. And what's been your experience of performing to Edinburgh crowds? Have you found that it's been different to other places in the world? Uh, well, you know, I think Edinburgh crowds, they're very smart. Uh, but I do notice there is a little, sometimes there is a little, like I have one bit that I get a good laugh. I, I have a bit that's pretty edgy. And after it's over, I go, too fringy? Cause, and it gets a good laugh because it's a fringe festival. And they, But even though it's a fringe festival, I do think... I think people may be more polite here than in America. There's like a more of a, you know, so I think that the edgier stuff sometimes could be a little trickier here than in America. Even I'm surprised by that because I think Americans are more sexually, what's the word, puritanical? Then I've heard that America because the Puritans left England from America, right? For America. But in some ways I find some edgier stuff is tougher to do here. On the other hand, I think people listen way better here and they're smarter in a lot of ways. They get it and they follow you better here. So that that's the differences. And have you found that there's been a big difference in style between the comedians in the UK and those that perform in America? Yeah, I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. I think I was on a, a show yesterday listening to some comedians at radio, Fred McCauley thing, and it made me trigger. A lot of the comedians out here, just I think they're more intellectual. The humor is more thought, you know, following logic. And wordplay. I like wordplay. I do some of that. And following logic and trains of thought. And I'm watching all these people. I'm thinking, well, I'm like that. I'm, I do, you know, it's like in America, I don't see that many people that do what I like thinking and analyzing. But out here, almost everyone seems to. So uh, I'm really impressed by the comedians out here. And do you have a favorite type of venue that you prefer performing in? Uh... Yeah, something that is, I like smaller, I think, than larger. You know, like an intimate thing, I think, is better for comedy. And uh, quiet. I also like out here that you don't have waitresses serving drinks, that people get their own drinks. And I notice no one's drinking while I'm performing. They're actually hardly ever drinking. So I don't understand when they drink. They have drinks, right? Maybe now other people aren't getting drinks. Is that true? I don't know. But it's very rare I see somebody actually drinking. So uh, 
it's great when there's no distractions. People aren't drinking and they're not, you know, it's a quiet room. And so those are the things, something that makes an intimate, quiet setting. And do you have a favorite type of audience that you prefer performing to? Smart people. <laughs> well, not that smart, but people that want to listen and people that want an experience and listen and don't want to be, you know, some audiences need to be shocked. I remember some, when someone once said to me, you're the type of comedian people need to listen to. And I'm thinking, isn't every comedian you need to listen to? I mean, there's some people you can like telepathically take in into your brain without actually hearing them. I mean, what the hell does that mean? You know, comedian to listen to. But I think, in, but I think what they mean is you have to really con- follow the train of thought. And any, so I like any audience that's willing to follow the train of thought. Uh, and here they all seem to be, you know. But in America, be, it could be hard because I think some days they rely too much. I mean, I hear comedians do sexual stuff here a lot, but in America, there's a lot of that sexual stuff. I once noticed to a friend, I said, stick your hand into any comedy club. Within a minute, you'll hear a reference to a sexual organ. Within a minute. And it's almost always like that. Within a minute. I sometimes I think they should call them comedy sex clubs because it's comedy about sex, you know. But then lately I noticed some comedians aren't doing that in America. And I'm thinking, wow, that's maybe because everything's cyclical. You know, maybe it's turning the other way. I don't know. Do you feel that American comedy is moving in a specific direction? I don't know. I think it may be moving into more of a smarter analytical thing. Uh, I think it might because I heard one, I don't want to mention names, but I heard one comedian that's always done sexual stuff and I stuck my head in and he wasn't. He was just talking and I'm thinking, oh my God, what's going on? They're trying to steal from me. Now I'm going to have to go sexual. (laughs) I do have a little of that, but, uh, you know, I don't, uh, it's not my strength in either comedy or life. (laughs) And do you have any tips or advice for aspiring comedians? It, uh, yes, my big tip would be to work hard, you know, try to, you know, it's, it's, I used to envy comedians when I first watched them thinking, look at all the attention they're getting. It must feel great to get all that attention. And it does, but you can't be on stage thinking, look at all the attention I'm getting because then you're not concentrating and doing it. So you, comedians aren't thinking, look at the attention they're getting, look at the attention I'm getting. Only I and the audience are thinking, look at the attention they're getting. So, but I think what it is, really is, I had no idea it's extremely hard work and to be, re- for at least for me, I don't know, maybe there are geniuses out there that don't have to work hard and they shouldn't listen to this. But I think in general, it's very hard work and it looks a lot easier than it is and just pe- pre- be prepared to work very, very hard off stage. It's like, an acting teacher once said to me, you bring on stage what you are off stage. And I think be prepared to work hard off stage. And do you have any tips or advice for students? Well, I think the real tip would be to do something you really want to do in life, you know, and not think about money. You know, well, I, again, now I'm afraid to give that tip because what if somebody does that and ruins their life? <laughs> and they're a starving artist for the rest of their life. But my, my general feeling is, again, let me pre- preempt this by saying, you know, take this advice at your own risk and it's your own decision if you take this advice. I don't guarantee this advice in any way will work for you. Uh, this is just general advice. If you want specific advice, go to a therapist trained in this area. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I will say... <laughs> I think it makes life a lot easier to work hard if you really love what you're doing. And since to be good at anything, you got to work hard. You better love it because you ain't going to work hard unless you love it. So find something you love.